So let us read today from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. It says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful this morning for you, for your love. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. And so we will sing. We will sing of your great love forever and ever. With our mouths, we will make known your faithfulness through all generations. We will declare that your love stands firm forever. You have established your faithfulness in the heavens itself. Who is like you, Lord, God Almighty? None. Father, I pray that we would finish the year strong. Many of us are tired and weary, and I pray that we would finish in a way that is strong. And by strong, I mean strength and weakness. I mean strength and depending upon you, that we would honor you. And Lord, I pray this morning your word would encourage us. It would give us strength. It would steal our ribs by your spirit through your word that will endure forever. The grass will wither and the flowers will fall, but your word will last forever. We pray this through Jesus Christ, your son, our king, who reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Well, the day after Christmas, it's one of the saddest days of the year. It's not quite Blue Monday. We still await that, but it is a depressing day for many. The holiday hoopla's come to an end, and for too many, there's some pretty bad consequences for financial decisions that may be less than wise. Some of us are antsy about what the new year's going to hold. I don't know about you, for me, 2020, 2020 and 2021 just kind of blended together. It's just all one. And so who knows what the next year will hold, but here we are on our last Sunday of the year, and what better topic to consider than the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The centrality of the gospel, something really important to us at Southside, in fact, to me personally, this was the first sermon, this theme was the first thing I preached uh, in view of a call here at Southside four and a half years ago. I wanted you all to know what I think the Bible's about, certainly what I'm about, and that is the centrality of the gospel. We talk about this in the first part of our membership class every time we have it. It's the whole first section because it's everything. And we'll preach again on basically the same thing in October. It's already on the calendar. Hugely important. And sadly, this is a distinctive of our church. I wish it weren't, but gospel-centered churches are the exception, not the norm. For too many churches, the main message is do rather than it is done. 
Now, the game's changed over the years. A couple generations ago, the focus was really rigid. It was on rules. Legalism just flowed from pulpits, hellfire and brimstone. And now the pendulum is swung in a sense. But the basic emphasis remains the same. Now, we dare not mention hell from pulpits. And pastors certainly speak less of rules, but we still speak of life hacks or tips. It's just a softer, kinder legalism. Five tips to a better marriage. Eight ways to deal with anxiety. Ten steps to better communication. Three hacks to godly parenting. On and on and on. But notice the similarity. The emphasis is still on do rather than done. It's the killer bees. Be this way. Be this kind of person. Be this. Or do this. Do this. Do this. Do-do sermons. (laughs) Do-do sermons are the norm. And sadly, the average congregant rarely hears of the glory of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Well, not here. And now, obviously, We do need help with all kinds of various things, and the Bible provides tons of help, but this is important. The main message of the Bible is not do, it it has been done on our behalf. The gospel is the central message of the Bible. Christianity is not fundamentally advice, but news. You know the difference, right? Advice is giving counsel, but news is a report of something that has happened. It's not what we should do, but it's what God has done for us. The fundamental message of Christianity is not be good and God will love you, but God loves those who realize that they lack goodness. I want us to see this from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're using one of our Bibles there in the chairs, it's page 903. 1 Corinthians 15. Let's consider four points together this morning. The gospel preached, the gospel upheld, the gospel confirmed, and the gospel at work. So first, the gospel preached. Look what he says there in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15. The Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Then look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So Paul here speaks of the gospel that that was preached to this local church in Corinth, the gospel they received, and he defines it real clearly for us right here. Christ died for our sins. There it is. Can't really be more simple than that. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. I think the emphasis on the fact that he was actually buried is showing that he was really dead. But he was raised. Christ died for our sins. What's the gospel? Christ died for our sins and was raised from the dead. And this was likely a a creedal tradition. What I mean by that is it was a creed before Paul even wrote the letter to Corinth. This message of the gospel as Christ dying for sins was not made up by Paul. Paul included it here in this message. It was the the main message from the very beginning. It's not made up. It's not to be tampered with. It is to be received and it is to be cherished, not tampered with and not distorted. In fact, the apostle Paul gets quite fierce when people distort with this message distort this message. Flip over if you want just a few books, 2 Corinthians and then Galatians. 
And maybe you remember what was going on in Galatians, but you had a church that was planted in Galatia. It was doing quite well, but then someone came along and started adding to the gospel saying, yes, you're justified. You're declared in the right by faith, but that's not quite enough. You need to add a little bit to it. Yes, Jesus is good. He's just not sufficient. So you need to add your obedience. You need to add your works. Well, notice how Paul describes what they're doing here in verse six. I'm astonished. Galatians 1, 6. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, and so now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me, it's not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This message is to be preserved and passed on and preached and received and it's the heart of the Christian faith. Christ died for our sins. Those three words, for our sins, it's actually a direct reflection from Isaiah chapter 53. Maybe you know it, it's a prophecy 700 years before Christ came that spoke of this suffering servant who suffered not because of anything in him but because of us, for us, in fact. Listen to some of the language of Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds, we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He bore the sin of many. Jesus died in our place. He he took our sins. In my place condemned, he stood. It's a word theologians call substitutionary atonement. It's an important word to know. On the cross, Jesus was our substitute. He died in our place. We were cursed and he redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. That's the gospel received and preached. I wonder, have you received this gospel? Maybe you're here and you haven't. Be your first step here is to trust in Jesus Christ. This good news is true. We're going to see that in a moment. It's historical. It was confirmed. And if you haven't trusted in Christ, this is your time to respond. Realize you're a sinner. Turn from your sin and to Christ. And he offers free forgiveness, free and full forgiveness. If you have questions about that, come talk to me. Come talk to one of our members, leaders. We'd love to talk more about it. That's the gospel preached. Now the gospel upheld. Look again. At 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Paul received this message. He didn't make it up. And he says, it's of first importance. You know, there are a lot of important things to talk about. But one surpasses them all in terms of importance. And it's the good news of Christ crucified for sinners. Paul's writing this letter here to the church at Corinth. And he's closing up here in chapter 15 and the next chapter. 
But he really started as well with this centrality of the gospel. He starts and ends. Flip back to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. It's of first importance. I wish I had time to show you how, maybe you remember, there was a lot of problems in the church in Corinth, all kinds of problems. And he just hits them one after another every chapter or so. And he applies the gospel to each of those situations. But notice how he starts in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18. For the word of the cross, another way of speaking about the gospel. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Flip over to the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the main thing. It's of first importance. That's why at the end of Galatians, Paul can say, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't move on past this gospel. We only move on to a more profound understanding of this gospel. Jerry Bridges, which by the way, I recommend everything Jerry Bridges writes He says this, the gospel is not only the most important message in all of history, it's the only essential message in all of history. Yet, we allow thousands of professing Christians to live their entire lives without clearly understanding it and experiencing the joy of living by it. More of that in a moment. But first, third, the gospel confirmed. Look at verse 5. Verse 4 says he was raised on the third day, verse 5, and he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, and though some have fallen asleep, and then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. All this is it's history, not fable, not made up. And there would be no good news if it were not history. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical event. The rest of chapter 15 goes to show that. It is objective reality. It happens. He was buried, legitimately dead, and he was raised. And he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, to the 12, and then to 500 others at the same time. You know, oftentimes uh, liberal theologians who deny, which is a lot of theologians actually, deny the historicity of the resurrection. Various theories right from the very beginning to say, well, he actually wasn't raised from the dead. People think it was audacious now. It was audacious then, but it's true. And one of the more popular ones is that no one actually saw Jesus. They didn't actually see Jesus after he had been raised. They were just so torn up about it and so emotionally distraught that they had a hallucination and they thought they did. But that would have to mean that 500 people had the same hallucination at the same time. And it says here, most of them were alive still. Paul's like, look, you have questions? Go talk with them. Go consult with them for corroboration. This is a public letter to be read aloud in the church at Corinth. And so, hey, if you have doubts, go talk to Charlie. He saw him. Go talk to Sarah. He saw, she saw him. Talk to Joe Bob. He was there. There's really no other way to explain the launch of Christianity 
There really isn't. Just think about it. No other way to explain the launch and explosive growth of the Christian faith other than the fact that a man said he was going to die and be raised and then did just that. And friends, if Jesus rose from the dead, then we have to accept everything he said. We've got to bank everything on him. So the gospel was confirmed. And then fourth, the gospel at work. As I said, we don't move past this gospel. It is central and it must remain central. It must be of first importance. The gospel is not just the beginning of the Christian life. I think that's the way way too many Christians perceive it. It just gets us in. No, it is the Christian life. It's not just the on-ramp, it's the highway. It's not just the diving board, it's the pool itself. It's not just the front door, it's the living room. We must remain centered on the gospel of grace. Pastor uh, in New York City, Tim Keller, puts it this way. He says, all change comes from deepening your understanding of the salvation of Christ and living out of, that change, of the changes that that understanding creates in your heart. Faith in the gospel restructures our motivations, our self-understanding, our identity, and our view of the world changes everything. He goes on, behavioral compliance to rules, which, listen, Abilene, Texas is really good at that. So were the Pharisees, though, and as we've seen in the Gospel of Matthew, who were the main antagonists of Jesus, people who had behavioral compliance to rules really well. Behavioral compliance to rules without heart change will be superficial and fleeting. The gospel, therefore, is not just the ABCs of the Christian life, but the A to Z of the Christian life. Our problems arise largely because we don't continually return to the gospel to work it in and live it out. I believe wholeheartedly that he's on to something right there. We believe here at Southside in the functional centrality of the gospel for Christians. Yes, for non-Christians, but we don't move past it. We need to keep hearing this gospel preached. That's why Paul tells the church of Rome, Romans 1, 14, 15, I'm eager to come to you, church, to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. And notice what Paul says here in these verses about it. He says, look at verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. We stand in the gospel. We don't move on. That's the way Paul puts it in Romans 5. Therefore, since we've been justified, that's declared in the right, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We stand in this grace. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Justification, again, is being declared in the right before God, having your sins forgiven and being credited with the perfect performance of Jesus. That's you if you're a Christian. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, your slate has been wiped clean. Your sins are forgiven. Really, all of them, past, present, future. But not only that, if, if that weren't enough, if you trusted in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven and you've been credited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Perfect, 
In God's eyes, you could not be more perfect because you've trusted in Jesus Christ. If, you, if you're a Christian, that's true of you. Your sin for his righteousness. The great exchange, as the early church fathers called it. And this grace is what we need to stand in. We don't move past it. We don't progress beyond it. To seek to move beyond grace is not progress. It's a digression. As Luther said, to progress is always to begin again. And so he says we stand in the gospel, but that's not all. We are also saved by the gospel. Look again at verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He says the gospel by which you are being saved. In other words, you, Christian, church at Corinth, he's speaking to believers here, you are saved, how? By the gospel, present tense. God saves Christians through the gospel. There are really three tenses to salvation, past, present, and future. We have been saved if we're in Christ, but there's a sense in which our ongoing sanctification, we are being saved, and then finally we will be saved. And what he tells us here is the way that we are, present tense, being saved, is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't move on. We stand in it. We're saved by it. That's why we sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sounds. In the middle there, it's grace that has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. Titus 2.12, it's the grace of God that trains us to renounce ungodliness. You think about grace that way? We think about law that way. No, law is what trains us. No, Titus 2, it's grace that trains us. 2 Peter 3.18, we're to grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.27, our manner of life, it needs to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 2 Timothy 2.1, we are to be strengthened. How are we strengthened? By the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Strengthened by grace. Acts chapter 20, Paul says, it is grace that is able to build us up. Grace builds us up. Grace, not law. It's what builds the church. If you want to flip over a couple books, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Look, I'm going to Colossians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So the church is planted in Colossae. And I love how Paul speaks of the gospel here. So there at the very end of verse 5, he mentions the, the word of the truth, that is the gospel. And then look at verse 6. This gospel message, Jesus dying for sinners, it has come to you. I love that. It's the gospel at the end of the day that came to you. Someone shared the gospel with you. Maybe it was your parents. Maybe it was a missionary. Maybe it was an evangelist. Maybe it was a neighbor. Actually, though, it was the gospel that came to you. Verse 6. As indeed in the whole world, this, it, it. What's he talking about? He's talking about the gospel. The gospel is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. You hear what he's saying? This gospel message Jesus died for sinners, it came and it goes and it conquers places, it, it's promoted and it bears fruit and increases, not only though in cities like Colossae or Abilene, but also in us. What bears fruit and changes us? The gospel does. 
So how are we ultimately saved? by which we are being saved? What keeps us in the faith? What keeps us believing? It's the gospel. Notice there's a condition here in 1 Corinthians 15, verse two. It says, if, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, there's a condition, but notice what God is calling us to, not to gain our salvation, not to pull up our moral bootstraps, but what? To keep believing, to hold fast to the word. In fact, I stopped in Colossians 1.6, but listen to Colossians 1.21. You who were once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Here's another condition. If indeed you continue in the faith, what's the condition? Keep believing. Don't stray from the gospel. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. How are we saved? By faith. Past tense. How are we saved? Present tense. By faith. We keep believing it's the gospel. This is why, friends, we need the gospel preached every week. It's one of the reasons God has ordained that we come together weekly to be reminded what the world says is false, what my own heart says is false. What God's word says is true. That's why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves even daily. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper every month. We've got to keep hitting refresh. Notice what he even says in verse one. I would remind you brothers. He's having to remind them already. Why? Because we forget. Oh man, we forget grace every day, every hour. And we go into law mode and performance mode and legalism mode and we forget this good news Martin Lloyd-Jones says this the gospel cannot be preached and heard enough for it cannot be grasped well enough even as believers we keep forgetting that our standing with God is secure by grace not by how we're doing and so we got to preach it to ourselves daily remind ourselves of grace every day hear the gospel preached every week because our default mode where we go to regularly is self-salvation. Just like the Pharisees. Our default mode is legalism. We've been set free by grace, but we put the chains back on. And we think that we've got to maintain our relationship with God by works rather than by faith. Again, notice how Paul rebukes and teaches the Galatians who are falling into this trap that all of humanity falls into, and that's leaning on works rather than grace. What does he say in Galatians 2.20? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, that's us right now, present tense. How do we live? The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He rebukes him in chapter 3. Verse three, he says, are you so foolish? Yeah, we are, all of us. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You're saved by grace, now all of a sudden you think you're gonna do it? We're like a freed slave who keeps jumping at the voice of his old master. We're like a 10-year-old orphan who's been adopted by a billionaire, but we still meander over to the food stamp line. Like a man with a fully repaired knee that still limps simply out of habit. 
We've been declared not guilty and let go out of the courthouse, but we keep dragging ourselves back into the courtroom and putting ourselves back on trial. We find it hard to stand in the gospel because the world, the flesh, and the devil all want us gauging God's love for us based on us rather than based on Christ. He wants us guilty and shamed when we blow it or prideful and puffed up when we're doing okay. He'll take either. One of those two opposite poles is where we will land. When we sin, we'll despair. We'll try to cover our shame ourselves. It really started at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. What did they do? Put up fig leaves to try to cover their shame. Nothing has changed. We just have nicer fig leaves. We've been on this same wrong-headed journey ever since. We try to cover our shame by establishing our own worthiness in whatever way we can. Or perhaps we'll do well. We'll have good days and we'll think God loves us because, well, we're doing quite well. We constantly fall either into pretend mode when we've not standing in the gospel or perform mode. And both are terrible places to be. The thief of joy. We find it hard to stand in this gospel because it's so counterintuitive. It's against everything in the world. Again, it's against our own flesh, isn't it? Everything in the world is performance, then verdict. Everything. And the gospel is verdict, not guilty. And then performance. We live in a performance-based world. We've got scores and sports and report cards and academics and contests with music, evaluations, and we often don't meet the standard. And then we transfer that sense of inadequacy to our relationship with God. And so we've got to keep the gospel central. We've got to be reminded of it again and again and again and stand in it. Well, what does that mean? Maybe you're like, okay, that sounds good. What does it mean? Well, practically, let's think briefly about 10 areas and just see briefly how this now power of the gospel applies. Think about forgiveness. All of us have been wronged. If not, we will be wronged. Some of us grievously so. How do you forgive when wronged deeply? Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Gospel, as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiven people forgive people. We don't hold grudges. That's anti-gospel. We're quick to give grace because we know how bad we need grace. So the gospel fuels forgiveness and to not grant forgiveness is anti-gospel. What about revenge? Again, when we're wronged, grievously so. Listen to what 1 Peter speaks about Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. What do we do? Well, we're like Jesus. We entrust ourselves. We don't take it into our own hands. We look to the gospel. That's how we can let go of vengeance. Maybe you heard, I think it was early December when the actual thing happened. Maybe you heard about this officer in Mesquite that was killed in the, in the line of duty, had his funeral service several weeks later. I think we have a video of uh, his daughter. And part of me wishes I could despise the man who did this to my father. But I can't get any, of, any part of my heart to hate him. 
All that I can find is myself hoping and praying for this man to truly know Jesus. I thought this might change if the man continued to live, but when I heard the news that he was in stable condition, part of me was relieved. My prayer is that someday down the road, I'd get to spend some time with the man who shot my father, not to scream at him, not to yell at him, not to scold him, simply to tell him about Jesus. I encourage you to watch the whole thing. I don't know how this gal is, but she's lost her daddy. Her daddy was apparently a really good dad. And uh, she's speaking of the man who killed him. And what is it that can produce that instead of a desire for revenge or, or even a desire for justice? She doesn't want the man to receive justice. She wants the man to receive grace. Why? Because she herself has experienced grace only. The gospel can do that. God gives undeserved kindness to us and we're moved to extend undeserved kindness. What about obedience? Obedience is important. Obedience is even necessary. Ephesians 2.8 helps us with the order. By grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Could it be more clear? It's not of yourselves. It's not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I wish I could spend more time on this. This is life changing, not saved by works, but saved for works. Many Christians get works on the wrong side of the equation. And so they're working and they're in this frenzy. They're working, they're working, they're serving, and they're trying to gain God's love. That's their motive. This is where the gospel gets at the motive level. You can have two people. Busy, serving, man, church doors are open, they're here, they give like crazy. They're doing all kinds of church work. And one can be filled with insecurity and fear and pride. And another can be filled with confident joy in the Lord and freedom and only a concern for others. Outwardly, they look exactly the same, but inwardly, they are polar opposites. Why? One's doing it for a position of righteousness. The joyful one is doing it from a position of righteous in Christ Jesus. What about giving? What's our motive for giving? Well, we should give. The law says you should tithe. Well, that's one motive. You know what the New Testament gives us though? Grace giving, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. What is the motive to be a generous person? The generosity of Jesus in the gospel. What about evangelism? Motive for evangelism, you should do it. People are perishing, don't you care? Those are actually could be legitimate motives, but do you know what we're given in 2 Corinthians 5 in the context of evangelism? 2 Corinthians 5, 14, the love of Christ compels us. And those are the best kinds of evangelists anyway, those that are doing it out of love for the Lord, not guilt, but gratitude for what he's done. What about marriage? 
you know, we're a, we're a unique church also in that we affirm male headship. That's a cuss word in today's culture, but we leave, believe men are called to lead. In fact, men, we're having a class in the spring starting, I think, January 12th, Wednesday nights at 5. Check out our website, events. would love for you to sign up. We believe and talk a lot about male headship, but you know what the paradigm and pattern of male headship is? It's not, woman, give me the remote. It's the gospel. It's Christ. He's the paradigm. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know, you really need to avoid sexual purity. Our culture is rampant. Boy, it is the idol of our day. Maybe it always has been, but it's in our face today. What's the motive? Why should you avoid sexual morality? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Flee from it. Flee from sexual morality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Here it is. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. What's the motive for sexual purity? Jesus bought you with the price of his own blood. What about suffering? It's been a season of suffering. It always is on the holidays, especially so nowadays. A lot of us are suffering. How does the gospel affect our suffering? Romans 8, 28, 29. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's working all things for our good as believers. And what is the good? It's defined as being made more like Jesus. So trials are not God's punishment to you. To think that when something goes bad in your life, God is displeased with you is to miss the gospel. Trials are not God's punishment, but actually, if we believe the Bible, God's kindness to us. Do you believe that? Do you believe, Romans 8, 28, 29, that God's working all things for your good? Trials are God's kindness to us to conform us to Jesus. Suffering is God's gift to his children to loosen our grip on the world that is bankrupt anyway. So our understanding here of the gospel and the grace of God, this now power of the gospel, it helps us. It gives us the ability to be joyful in all circumstances. Again, only the gospel does that. On the good day and on the rainy day. When life gives you lemons, and it will, you still have the lemonade of the gospel. What about humility? Well, we know it's only by the grace of God that we're saved. Only by grace. We're fundamentally in our nature, we're no different than the worst person on our street. We're no better than anybody. We're saved by grace and grace alone. As Jonathan Edwards put it, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. It's awfully hard to look down on others when we're down at the foot of the cross. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. What about assurance? The gospel gives us assurance. Colossians 2 speaks of all the riches of full assurance. 
I love that phrase because those of us who are assured of God's love for them, not because of anything in us, but simply because of Christ, are rich indeed. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. If you've trusted in Christ, you're a child of God and your status and your standing, even on your worst day, does not depend upon you, but on the substitutionary death of Jesus, on the perfect life of Jesus Christ. So we ought to be assured, even when we're tempted to doubt God's love for us. That's why we sing. When Satan tempts me to despair, what's despair except the lack of assurance? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, in most days there's legitimate guilt within if we're being honest with ourselves. What do we do when he does that? Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. When we're tempted to despair and doubt, we look at cross, we look at the cross, we look at grace, we remind ourselves we stand in the gospel. It's how we stay assured. It's how we fight temptation. One of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. He's preaching the gospel to himself. His name is Jesus Christ, son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Friends, the gospel says God could not love you any more than he does right now because he can't love his son any more than he loves his son. And so church, as we enter a new year, not knowing what we'll see, let's not forget the gospel of Jesus Christ for crucified for sinners. Let's remind ourselves of it. Let's preach it to ourselves. Let's come in here and sing about it, celebrate it. Let's stand in it. As our grandparents used to sing, I love to tell the story. For those who know it best, seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, it'll be the old, old story that I've loved so long. I love to tell the story. It'll be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Let's pray together. Father, by your spirit, would you change us by the gospel? Father, we confess that hearing this news doesn't light us up like it should. And so I pray as we go into the next year that that would change. That daily and, and weekly, even hourly, we would be blown away by your grace. And God, for some of us, that means we need to realize our sin more. And so I pray that you would give us a realistic self-perception. May we not view ourselves in light of what the culture says, but what your word says and realize just how bad it is. We're far worse than we think. But at the same time, may we grow in our appreciation of your love. Realize you love us far more than we could ever dare dream. Thank you for the grace of God. May we stand in it. Would you root us in the gospel? 
that we might truly honor you, both in our outward lives and from the heart, and there we'll find true joy. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.